The Guardian. Happy New Year and welcome to Politics Weekly Extra. I'm Jonathan Friedland. We are now officially out of 2020 and my word, what a year that was. We always knew this was going to be a big one because it was a presidential election year and because it would be the first chance Americans would have to deliver their verdict and perhaps even deliver their marching orders to Donald Trump, the chance to fire him. So it was always going to be huge for politics. What we didn't know going into it, though, is that there would be a global pandemic and that partly thanks to the handling of that crisis by Donald Trump, it would hit America particularly badly. We also didn't know that 2020 would be the biggest year for social upheaval and particularly racially charged unrest since 1968. And yet, because of the killing of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement, it was that too. So 2020, an absolutely huge year. So we're going to look ahead to what comes next in 2021. And to do that, we thought we would bring together three very distinct voices, three of my colleagues, not to make predictions. We've all learnt our lesson. We don't do that anymore. But instead, to have a sense of what this year might bring, what are going to be the big questions. To do that, we brought together Richard Wolfe, columnist for Guardian US, Lauren Gambino, who is senior political reporter at Guardian US, and her fellow reporter, Kenya Evelyn. Now, as in typical 2020 fashion, the technology, of course, let us down a bit. So you'll hear their voices do seem to change a little bit right at the very end, but they still sound great. And it is, I think, a fascinating conversation. So sit back and listen as we give our take on what 2021 might bring. Before we move on to next year, 2021, we can't really leave 2020 without at least a quick look back. Uh, Kenya, tell me for you, how glad are you to see the back of 2020? (laughs) I am relieved to see its end. Um, I think this was a tumultuous year in many ways for for many people, um, whether it be, you know, the coronavirus pandemic for many communities that, you know, face the brunt harder, as well as just trying to get closer to what we can see as the end game in, in much of a tumultuous four years of a of a presidency that for Americans are just are exhausted from. So I think this just signifies the end of a very difficult cycle in American history, a difficult period in many American lives. And I think there's just an eagerness to see some type of change or semblance of change and just a tick of a number indicating that it could be another year can be that little bit of optimism that people are looking for. And and I, I, I can admit myself I'm looking forward to. Look, any bit of optimism at all that we can get, we're going to cling hold it, cling to it tightly. We need anything we can get. Richard, we, you know, we all knew that 2020 was already in the calendar as a big one because of a, any presidential election year is always going to be huge. In American politics, the world was always going to be watching. Just looking back on it now, do you think if there hadn't been these, particularly the pandemic, if it hadn't been for that, do you think the outcome on November the 3rd might have been very, very different? No, I don't, actually. Um, For a start, this was a huge win for Joe Biden. For all of the weirdness about how the results came in, a four, five-point win is, by historic standards, really convincing. You may even call it a landslide, depending on what your definition of a landslide is. 
greater than Obama's re-election margin, greater than Bush's re-election margin, neither of which were considered narrow wins. So do I think it would have been closer? Yes. But even then, I think the Trump presidency has been so catastrophically bad. If it were not for this historic catastrophe of the pandemic and his mishandling of it, there would have been another because that's who Trump is. The, every voter he drove out for himself, he drove out 1.1 of the other side. And that has always been the conundrum around this man who's supposed to be populist, but wasn't ever that popular. All right. Well, let's, I mean, we could go on about 2020 uh, a lot and God knows we already have for many, many months. So let's focus, swivel our eyes to the new year that begins as people are hearing this, 2021. Lauren, uh, I mean, in a way, before we can make any predictions or projections about the year ahead, I suppose we've got to talk about the event that is now, uh, as we, as people hear this, just a few days away, which are these twin elections in Georgia. Does everything that happens politically in 2021, in a way, hinge on what happens in those two contests, more or less in the first week of the new year? That's a difficult question to answer. I'd say yes and no. I think these two races, these two Senate races are runoffs, meaning that um, the Democrats were able to sort of force uh, the results to be under 50%, forcing these two uh, Republican senators into a runoff election that will be decided in early January. If the Democrats can pull off both wins, which is a very uphill battle in the state of Georgia, uh, they will have a tied Senate 50-50 and Kamala Harris in our system of government, she would be the tie-breaking vote as vice president. So that would be an massive help to Joe Biden passing his agenda. Otherwise, if they lose, he has to deal with Mitch McConnell, who has probably considered himself the grim reaper of Democratic bills. So that would, I think, severely hinder his ability to you know pass a lot of these big ticket items like climate change that Joe Biden ran on. On the other hand, a 50-50 tied Senate is extremely difficult for any president. Um, you know, you're, you have some conservative Democrats, any one senator, and these are people with very big egos, it's a hundred person body, can sort of affect the results. So it will still require massive negotiations. And you are seeing uh, progressive Democrats in particular really pressure Joe Biden to start looking at what he might be able to do through executive action, no matter what happens with the Senate. Kenya, I, I, I know nobody wants to make predictions in politics now after everything we've seen these last few years. But if you did have to sort of stick your neck out and uh, and sort of project how you think the contest just a few days away in Georgia is going to play out, what's your feeling about it? Sure. Well, here in Georgia right now, what you're beginning to see very much so is, you know, fatigue. This is supposed to be a lame duck session. This is supposed to be a holiday season where people can kind of forget the hustle and bustle, the rat race of, of Washington, D.C., and especially with this administration having to be inundated almost daily with news, uh, con controversy or some type of scandal. So Americans are just exhausted of elections, but particularly with Georgians when they're 
still being inundated with, you know, text messages reminding them to vote. You know, these are the type of things that, you know, would motivate voters throughout the general election. But a lot of people I've talked to, especially those who were in line for early voting, they're saying, I just want to get it out of the way. I'm, I'm tired of the vitriol. I'm tired of the ads. I'm tired of the filers and paperwork that is coming to my house with all of this misinformation or disinformation about candidates. And we just want to get back to a politics that didn't rob people of their humanity, that didn't undercut people at the core of who they are as human beings, and didn't position Georgians as outsiders, someone, people who are native generational Georgians as outsiders. They're ready to get back into a sense of community. And so a lot of people are just eager to get beyond this, but especially those candidates who speak to a sense of community. I think we're going to see that play out with election results. And so particularly with uh, Reverend Raphael Warnock, I think we are going to see a victory there. Other elections, I'm not quite so sure, or excuse me, especially with Purdue, I'm not quite so sure. I think there is much of a, is a much closer contest there than we're realizing. But people are coming out and people are ready to move on. I mean, you're there in Georgia. The point is that actually, even if one gain is made, and you mentioned Raphael Warnock, and I think people tip him to be more likely to win, unless the Democrats win both, in a way, it's sort of academic, isn't it? Because what's at stake here is whether or not you control the Senate. And for that to happen, Democrats have to win both. Absolutely. Democrats have to win both seats in order to have a tie break in the Senate. And so Democrats understand more than perhaps their Republican counterparts, the need to to motivate people to get out to the polls. And I do believe Republicans may be underestimating just how effective um, a sense of mob rule is in feeling like this election was stolen, like this, like voters were disenfranchised. So these calls to hold Republicans and the GOP accountable, some going as far as to say stay home, that that's actually connecting with voters here who feel like they're, they're they were disenfranchised or believe uh, President Donald Trump's or former President Donald Trump. They're believing his his rhetoric. They're believing his calls about widespread voter fraud. And because they're believing this this falsehood, they sense that, you know, this was stolen from them, that, that Republicans aren't fighting hard enough. So why should I fight for them? And we are seeing apathy. I am seeing apathy in particular among Republicans who may not turn out this time around, although they did in the general election. So, all right. So 2021 is going to kick off with a massive political story, control of the Senate uh, up for grabs. But let's try and think beyond that, Richard. Let's just imagine Democrats do not win control of the Senate. Perhaps on the line lines Kenya was saying that Raphael Warnock wins, but John Ossoff, the other Democratic candidate, doesn't. In that situation, let's work on that sort of, as it were, for Democrats, pessimistic assumption. What do you think in this year, 2021, Joe Biden will be able to do? And what do you think he will do? Well, for a start, I think back to 2009, the start of the Obama presidency, where rather differently, he, of course, had sweeping majorities. Um, in fact, he had a 60 seat majority in the Senate. And, you know, it, you go in there as a candidate thinking you're going to do any number of different things, your bold agenda on this, that and the other. But in fact, the crisis that you're handed, um, Rahm Emanuel, the chief of staff at the time, described it in colorful terms as a sandwich made up of things you wouldn't want to eat tied in a red ribbon. And there is very clearly one priority that is going to overwhelm the incoming Biden team, and that's the pandemic and the uh, associated economic slump. 
And I think digging out of that is going to be a much longer effort than any of us can imagine. And and at the same time, they have to repair the machinery of government, which has been gutted. You've seen an exodus of career civil servants. You've got these political appointees, highly ideological, who've been buried into the bureaucracy, sort of fulfilling the fantasies, the conspiracies of a deep state. But in reverse, it's Trump's deep state. And so I think I think there's going to be a challenge just getting government up and running. The nomination process will be dragged out, uh, you know, even with a, a, a slender majority. The optimistic scenario, you've got moderates, a tiny group of moderates in the Senate, so-called moderates, who who will wield unusual power. And there will be a lot of back and forth and horse trading. You know, Joe Biden's got experience of that, but it slows everything down at a time when you need really quick action. So yes, there'll be executive orders, but bold action on climate, for instance, which he has committed to, and on immigration, these things are going to be difficult. And it's going to be difficult because the pandemic is first, second, and third, and possibly the economy is fourth and fifth. And after that, who knows when you get to that stuff? Lauren, one thing that people have talked about, you heard Richard talking about executive orders. One one thing you do hear people talk about is the power Joe Biden would have, for example, to cancel student debt. And this is a, a prediction some are making as something he would want to do in 2021. It's something the progressives in the party would like. And also, it would be an injection of some money into the economy. What do you think on that prediction slash projection? That would be probably just good politics because I would ease the burden at a time of, you know, immense economic uncertainty for so many American families. And it's a popular idea, relatively. There is this big sort of groundswell of support among the progressives. Um, Obviously, there's questions about how you sort of go about it um, using the executive powers. The details, of course, would be very important here. But he could probably buy himself some goodwill, particularly with the progressive left. There is opposition, certainly, to sort of just fully wiping out student debt. That being said, Trump has, the Trump administration has, you know, allowed postponements on paying off your student debt loans during the pandemic. So there's sort of a, a starting point, I guess, for doing this. Um, and so it's, it will be interesting, I think, to see how far Biden's willing to take that. That's right. I mean, one of the reasons I think people predict it is just because it is the sort of thing he could do by executive order. And this is just working on this premise that he's going to be really limited in what he's able to get through Congress. I mean, Richard was touching on some of that. There are, Kenya, aren't there, two sides to this question. There's what will Joe Biden want to do? And then there's what does Mitch McConnell let him do? Biden himself has been quite sort of confident about this saying you know he did this interview with Tom Friedman in the New York Times saying look I know McConnell and I know the Senate and I was there forever and I know how it works what do you think I mean do you know what sense do you get of of what mood McConnell's in is he in the mood to make things happen or is he in a mood to just block and obstruct this incoming new president I think we have already seen the extent to how much Mitch McConnell will obstruct an administration. And so we have precedents for that. We do know that, you know, 
President-elect Joe Biden. He is known as a relationship builder. He's well-liked on Capitol Hill. He has long-standing relationships with other politicians, other con- other members of Congress, uh, particularly uh, Mitch McConnell. But, you know, he's in a difficult position to, to have the optics of how much he went to extend an olive branch and working with a party that has essentially worked to invalidate your presidency. And how much are you willing to do that at the, at the expense of alienating perhaps your more progressive base, voters who came to the Democratic Party with promises of a progressive push, an evolution of the party. So how much are you willing to work with, you know, your your opponent who worked to invalidate your win? And I think what we're seeing with Mitch McConnell is a is a small, small semblance of even just recognizing his presidency, recognizing Joe Biden as a president elect. I think we're going to see some beginnings of trying to dial back the rhetoric or take back the narrative and not being seen as an obstructionist administration or obstructionist body of Congress, but rather someone that is trying to salvage any remaining semblance of a Republican Party that is respectable among its own constituents and among the the American voters. See, I wonder if that's what we would do if we were Mitch McConnell. That's how we would think. But Richard, I'd love to hear, I I want to feel hopeful as we start this new year. What are the grounds for thinking this Mitch McConnell will behave differently with Joe Biden. Biden believes it's his own personal friendship and history and personality. Are there any grounds to believe this, you know, meet the new Republican Party different from the old Republican Party in 2021? So look, I, I, I'm an optimist by nature. I, I want to indulge your optimism for a second here. Um, Joe Biden's personal charms are real. Uh, they are old school, they're backslapping, but there's a reason why he was uh, Barack Obama's emissary to the Congress and especially the Senate. He's very physical. He's very tactile. He's uh, a centrist. He looks for compromise. He's, for a a, a lifelong senator, relatively uh, generous in giving credit to other people for achievements. So there are reasons to think that kind of deal-making skill would help. In particular with Mitch McConnell, yes, he wants power. He exercises the sort of parliamentary maneuvers exceptionally well and exceptionally cynically. However, one thing that you need to understand about Mitch McConnell is that the reason he has held such a tight grip on Kentucky, the state he represents, is because he delivers the pork barrel dollars. Everywhere you go in Kentucky, there's a McConnell Institute and the McConnell Building, the McConnell this and the McConnell that. If you can reintroduce those kinds of local favors, that greases the wheels of everything. Because yes, they want their party to win, but more than anything else, they want to stay as incumbents forever. So, you know, I think with the right amount of greasing of the wheels and the right amount of backslapping, there may be a narrow path for some things to happen, or at least in the early months when everyone wants to look reasonable. I have no doubt that Mitch McConnell will be playing a longer game and that the forces of Trumpism will not go away and will continue to be a threat to all incumbents because they're worried about primary threats from the right. Having said that, there are some grounds to think that some things could get through, but I think it will grind to a halt after the first six months. There's a small window to get stuff done, and that's why the pandemic is going to suck up far too much of the oxygen to get to the rest of the agenda. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. I'm Jonathan Friedland, and we're looking ahead to what 2021 might bring. Lauren, traditionally there is this yardstick, this measure of the 100 days, and you heard Richard talk about six months. What do you think? You know, As far as you know, is there even a plan? Does Biden have a 100 days plan, or is it all just pandemic, pandemic, pandemic? Well, the 100-day plan is the p- focused on the pandemic, um, but he has laid out a lot of uh, you know, a lot of actions he'd like to take in the early days. So, you know, day one includes rolling back a lot of Donald Trump's immigration orders. He will rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement. So there's actions like this that he will take unilaterally. But on the pandemic, he has outlined a 100-day vision that includes uh, he would like to have 100 million doses of the vaccine injected into arms in the first 100 days. He wants to enact a mask mandate um, for the first 100 days, which you know might and probably will be politically controversial, uh, just given the way that the Trump administration has sort of polarized mask wearing in the country. But he will ask and then mandate where he can that people wear masks. Um, and he will also said he will try to reopen the majority of American schools in the first 100 days, which would be a big difference to where we are now, which is a really scattershot city-by-city situation with some schools closed, some schools open, not a lot of federal guidance. So that could make a big difference um, in how, how we sort of enter the next phase of the pandemic, which is the vaccine rollout. And that will be a big focus of the first 100 days and, you know, the so certainly the first few months of the Biden administration is how you equitably and fairly administer this vaccine to Americans. Now, I want to talk about three individuals in particular and what 2021 is going to hold for them. It's probably, we've talked a lot about Joe Biden and that's uh, as it should be, but the first one of these is probably not going to surprise you very much. Even though officially we are meant to see the back of him, what about Donald Trump? And what this comes up early in 2021, because there's a big question about the 20th of January 2021, that date in the diary, because it is the formal handover. That's the day Joe Biden will be inaugurated. What do you think, Kenya? Do you think how is Donald Trump going to play this? Is What's your prediction for whether or not Donald Trump even does the minimum and attends, turns up at Joe Biden's inauguration on the steps of Capitol Hill nearly just short of three weeks away from now? I think there, I mean, I, I, I can't recall how many times I've said this in the last <laughs> several weeks now, but I think there's a, a, a critical phrase that we hear so often that when someone shows you who they are, believe them the first time. I think we should not underestimate uh, Donald Trump's ability to make any incident, any instance about himself, about Donald Trump. And so I don't think we should expect, we are already hearing rumblings that, you know, he may not leave the White House at all. And so, you know, even supporters or uh, opponents and those who are eagerly waiting for him to leave are offering or suggesting that it should be a pay-per-view to watch him be escorted out. Um, (laughs) But, you know, even just those rumblings that he won't leave or that he may create his own parallel uh, rally after, you know, flying out of the White House. We cannot underestimate a president who has centered himself in every, nearly every policy initiative, every executive order, has positioned himself even amid a pandemic that has, you know, killed more than 300,000 people. This president will find a way and is insisting on even just in keeping his name in the headlines and the speculation about inauguration. This falls into Donald Trump's playbook of keeping his name out there, keeping his brand out there. So perhaps we can entertain a 2024 run. 
And there is talk, isn't there, Richard, of, of him just being a permanent presence through the Biden presidency in the form of Trump TV or some variant thereof. I want to sort of recalibrate a little bit and look at how past presidents have behaved. For a start, him having a rally on the final day, on inaugural day, is actually normal. Clinton did it. Uh, Obama did it. Bush did it. They tend to be at airport hangars where, you know, they're talking to friends and former officials. Maybe he'll do it in an arena with more of his fans, but it's not that much of a breach. What will be different is that most ex-presidents try to maintain some sense of dignity. Uh, they try and reserve uh, reserve their voice so that there's a scarcity value, having been everywhere for the last four or eight years. They want to hoard things for the release of their book or for exclusive interviews, and they enjoy their privacy, and that's clearly not going to be the case for Trump. The danger of that is that the scarcity value doesn't exist anymore. So say you're Fox News and you want to binge on Trump phone calls, you know, how how long does that keep your ratings going? The reason for listening to him is because he has power. And when he doesn't have power, sure, there's a base that will want to hear from him. But there will be other leaders, other Trump figures who will be doing it better. And he himself will be burdened with financial investigations. The IRS audit will come to an end, potentially costing him hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, there are legal investigations and there are debts that are going to be recalled. So he's got a lot going on. And I think part of dangling the prospects of another run out there is simply to raise money, to maintain some relevance and to try and survive the ongoing challenges that he'll have. It's interesting this mention of Trump and perhaps other Trump figures. One way, Lauren, that people are saying the Trump name might remain in the headlines in 2021 is through not Donald Trump, but Lara Trump, his daughter-in-law, who's eyeing up a Senate seat in North Carolina. And I know that contest doesn't actually uh, come up till 2022, but if she wants to do it, she'd have to say so in 2021. What do you make of that? Do you think that's for real or is that just more PR? I think we should absolutely take it seriously. I mean, the Trump children and their spouses have made themselves very front and center this campaign. They've gone um, all over the country, despite the pandemic, holding big events uh, sort of in line with their father, father-in-law. And so they really tried to establish their own brand within the Trump name. And I think it's very plausible to think that they will try to you know, venture out and establish their own political careers, uh, riding Trump's coattails. Um, I think it'll just be really interesting to watch how much he can, you know, confer his popularity to his children and their plus ones. You know, even with some, you know, of his closest allies on Capitol Hill, we, we've just seen supporters of Trump like Trump, and it's hard to uh, translate that to other people. And so I think that will be something that will be interesting to watch. But certainly in the case of Lara Trump, she has tried to she's tried to find this niche with suburban women, which the Republican Party is hemorrhaging, suburban white women. And I think she's tried to be sort of this example of you, how you can bridge Trumpism and you know the, the modern Republican Party, which would require support from suburban white women, which they did lose a number of uh, during the last four years. 
So it's amazing. I thought that he built a whole business, Donald Trump, on licensing his name. And yet, in a way, we don't know if it's a transferable asset or not in politics. But so that's one thing that 2021 might reveal. I, I promised I was going to mention two other names. Um, and the first of those, um, Kenya, is Nancy Pelosi. Uh, I think she either has turned 80 or will turn 80 in the course of 2021. Either way, she said that she's going to retire and that this will be her last term as Speaker, and I think even in Congress, I'm guessing that 2021 is going to see the beginnings of the race to succeed her. And that will surely be a battle of, or a focus for the battle between progressives and moderates in the Democratic Party. How do you think that plays out in 2021? We are already seeing a split in the Democratic Party among progressive, uh, a progressive faction and our more moderate counterparts. And obviously, representing that older guard of the moderates, Pelosi's is her tenure and knowing that she will retire is going to set off what we're already seeing happening within the Democrats. That there's a fight for who will be the voice of the party moving forward. Obviously, with progressive, they're saying, you know, you need to tap into future generations of potentially Democratic voters. We lost too many races. We lost too many headway, too much headway in places that were critical for Democrats, like Latino communities in Texas, like Asian American communities in in Florida and Georgia. We need to be, be cognizant of essentially what will be the movement moving forward. And candidates like a Cori Bush, candidate, or excuse me, winners like a Cori Bush or an AOC, they are speaking to future generations of Democrats. They are going to represent a faction of the party that has increasing prominence within it. And so it, it, it behooves moderates to to reach across that aisle or to reach across their own party and build those coalitions early. But we are seeing that play out right now. And we'll see that play out very early in 2021 as well. We're seeing it play out in terms of even just debates about defunding the police and the rhetoric behind a phrase. Right, because Richard, lots of Democrats, moderates said, Jim Clyburn in South Carolina, other places said, that was trouble for us. And we lost seats we might otherwise have won because those progressive slogans associated with the likes of AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and others turned off voters that Democrats need to win. How do you see that panning out in 2021? Well, I've known Nancy Pelosi for years and and her family too. And, and they straddle this divide between the centrists and the progressives. Remember, Pelosi's been vilified for a very long time by the right for being a San Francisco liberal. You know, she actually wields power not just because of that, but because she has this iron grip, particularly in terms of fundraising among the House Democrats. So I think she'll keep an iron grip on this one and a lid on this one until right at the end, at which point the frustrations will break out into the open. You know, before Pelosi was Pelosi, it, it wasn't obvious that she could wield this kind of power and that she was this politically savvy. And, and she's been underestimated for most of her career. I think there are significant talents in, in the younger generations that will emerge. And um, it, it's very hard to pinpoint who that's going to be. In all likelihood, they will be progressive. The frustrations will have reached a boiling point. And the progressive base, remember the, the House races, the gerrymandering works on both sides, uh, obviously more on the Republicans, but there are really strongly Democratic districts where people are going to be worried about a Bernie Sanders type constituency challenge coming from the left. So 
I think the likelihood is that, you know, after the next midterms, which traditionally go against the incumbent president, uh, Democrats lose some seats and, and a progressive emerges. I said that I would be talking about three names we've already talked about, Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi. I deliberately leave the third name blank so that you can tell me who you think is going to be a standout name in 2021. Who's your nomination, Kenya Evelyn? Well, I think the name that we cannot forget and cannot ignore has been monumental in driving out uh, voter voters to the polls and then, you know, just galvanizing certain important critical elements of the Democratic Party and base, and that is Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. She speaks to essentially what we're seeing happening right now. She is a moderate, uh, but she does speak to emerging generations that will make up much of the Democratic Party uh, for election cycles to come. And being that she is the first Black American, the first uh, Southeast Asian, excuse me, the first Asian American, as well as, you know, uh, the first daughter of immigrants to be elected to this position. We see that her global prominence is rising. We see that she connected with people all across the world. And so we're seeing that, you know, voters are just excited about what a, a Kamala Harris vice presidency will look like. Obviously, there's already rumors that, you know, she will run for president herself or, or attempt the presidency uh, moving forward. And people are, are excited to see where she goes, how this will play out for HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities, as well as many of the other entities that she speaks to and the voters that she drew, she, she brought out to the polls. And Richard, do, who do you see as a potential standout name in 2021? Perhaps a name we haven't talked about before, might be one of Biden's picks or elsewhere. What do you think? But Kamala Harris was my pick. Oh, that's terrible, going last. Um, I, I do think that the uh, Kamala Harris AOC contest is going to be a shadow, a struggle for the future of the Democratic Party. You know, the question we have is, it, it, how how long does Joe Biden plan to stick around? Uh, he says he's a transitional figure. Uh, we don't know if that means a one term or maybe he just means historically transitional. I, I think beyond that, we are actually struggling on the Democratic side because it was not a banner year for them in terms of breakout names. I do think that watching Pete Buttigieg come in as a transport secretary is a sort of uh, a kiss of death for his career. It's a, it's a worthy job, but doesn't position him for the future. So, you know, the, the real question is, does AOC make her move, prepare to make her move to challenge for the next presidential contest? It may seem like a long way away, but the undercurrents in, the, in, in politics uh, are moving already. And so um, I wish I could give you a new name, but I would say that, that Kamala Harris AOC sort of war by proxy or at least debate by proxy is going to be the most fascinating piece of, of the, the subtext of this Biden administration. Terrific. We always ask on the podcast, we did all through 2020, and we see no reason to stop, a what else question. And so my what else question for 2021, maybe it's for you, Richard, which is about, and it sounds so technical and nerdy, even the word is dull, but it could be so important, and that is redistricting. Explain to us why that's important and what you think is going to happen. So at the start of a new decade, the state assemblies, the state houses, start to look at their maps, their congressional maps. Uh, and, and that's not just in the state, uh, uh, state contest, but federal contest too. 
So this is where you get on the house side, this question of gerrymandering. Can you redistrict, redraw the lines to make them more favorable to your party? It, it's not true in every state that this happens, but in some of the bigger states, places like Texas, it really has been used for ideological partisan purposes for the last several decades to great effect. What that does uh, through gerrymandering is that means that the House in particular, of course, you can't redistrict a, a, a Senate seat because that's a state map. But in the House, what that means is that there are fewer and fewer contestable seats. The districts are geared towards one party maintaining control, which means that the real challenge to an incumbent member of Congress comes from the right if you're a Republican or the left if you're a Democrat. So finding consensus, finding common ground becomes harder and harder because members of Congress tilt more and more to their extremes because they're worried about these primary challenges. Now, because Democrats underperformed, at least on the lower ends of the ballot, underneath the presidential level, because they underperformed in 2020, that means they didn't take as many state seats as they thought they would, as many state houses. And so Republicans still hold a majority of those, which means that they can continue to gerrymander. You know, the question there, I think, is not just about gerrymandering, but the lingering legacy of Trumpism. Do they try to mimic what Trump did and, and be more and more outrageous and conspiracy minded and, and sort of destroying faith in institutions and the independent news media? Or do they drift back to the mean of the last several decades and be fact-based and reasonable and seek compromise. That would be true of the Senate, but you know we're not seeing those trends yet. And because redistricting is happening under essentially the status quo, I don't think you're going to see anything like it in the House either. Well, that is certainly something for us to watch unfolding in 2021, along with everything else we've discussed. Our thanks to you, Richard Wolfe, also to Kenya, Evelyn and Lauren Gambino, both of whom battled against the technological gremlins that sought to defeat us. And Richard, I'll just say it to you. Thank you and wishing you, of course, a very, very happy new year. A happy new year to you and a better new year to everyone. We are now officially in 2021 and with no time to waste because next Tuesday, people in Georgia head back to the polls for those all-important Senate elections. I'll be back here next Friday to bring you all the latest on that. Danielle Stevens is our producer and I'm Jonathan Friedland. Thanks as always for listening and Happy New Year. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.